Let me add my words of greeting, and uh, especially also to those who are joining us through our live stream around the world who are here for this special day. In just a few weeks, the Church of Jesus Christ around the world will celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther was a relatively obscure theology professor uh, at in Wittenberg University and also a priest of the city church. And on October 31st, that's All Saints' Eve, in the year 1517, uh, this monk, according to Melanchthon, the great theologian of the Reformation, nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. The 95 Theses is one of those historic documents in the life of the church which is widely known but seldom actually read. <laughs> if you take time to read the 95 Theses, you'll quickly discover that none of the theological hallmarks of the Reformation are explicitly found in the document. It is not as though you open up the, uh, the 95 Theses and 500 years ago, a monk you know, emerges from the midst of time and he nails his clarion call to the door of the church, which begins like this. We are saved by grace through faith alone in the unmerited work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I know this because the Bible tells me so. Uh, that is not found in the 95 Theses. In fact, the first two solas of the Reformation, sola gratia and sola fide, grace alone, faith alone, do not emerge in that precise form as clarion calls that summarize the Reformation to almost 40 years later in the writings again of Melanchthon. The closest Luther comes to it is in number 62 of the 95 Theses. I see some of you are Googling them already as I speak. <laughs> number 62, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. Amen. My favorite. Nevertheless, Luther's theology does emerge rather quickly, especially after the famous Leipzig debate in 1519 between the German uh, theologian Andreas Karlstadt, the Dominican Johann Eck, and, of course, Luther himself, which took place in the large castle of Pleissenburg. Now, after the Leipzig debate, uh, Pope Leo X censored Luther, it's the one that originally said, you know, uh, Luther the drunken monk, uh, who, when several change his mind, realize at this point, no, this is serious, and Luther gets uh, 40, 49 of his theses, were, or 30 of his teachings were declared heretical. Uh, in the course of the election debate, he had been forced to concede that John Huss was wrongly burned at the stake back in 1415 uh, against the church council. But in 1520, Luther's writings explode in five really important treatises. In May, he wrote his sermon, or his, his little booklet, Sermon on Good Works, which set forth the relationship between faith and works. Uh, in June, he wrote his The Papacy in Rome, which asserts the true authority of the church and its limits as well. In August, he writes his address to the German nobility, where he sets forth the priesthood of all believers. In September, he wrote his uh, Babylonian Captivity of the Church, which addresses the sacraments, he asked, why in the world do we withhold the cup from the laity? Christ died for all. Why is that an altar, not a table? All of that comes up in Luther's writings. And then, of course, in November, he writes his treatise on Christian liberty, where he asserts justification by faith. All of that happened in 1520. 
It was actually then that 41 of those teachings are declared heresy. Luther gets that papal decree. He burns it publicly. And in January 1521, Luther was excommunicated. The Reformation was now fully engaged. And thousands would give their lives for this great cause. Now, the actual subject matter of the 95 Theses is almost exclusively dedicated to one particular abuse in the life of the church known as indulgences. There's a practice which was particularly grievous in the Saxony state where Luther lived, and particularly grievous under the practice of the Dominican friar named Johann Tetzel, who was the grand commissioner for, uh, for Germany. Now, Tetzel was selling a piece of paper called indulgence, which if you purchased it, would allow you to draw upon the merits of past saints and apply them to yourself to forgive your own future years you would spend in purgatory. Where do you begin? <laughs> the famous line, which we don't think Tetzel actually said this, but became uh, his interlocutors would use this as a summary of the teaching, which is an apt summary of the teaching. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And it's even more catchy in German. <laughs> they knew how to do it in those days, too. But the purpose of the indulgence, uh, indulgences was to pay for the construction of St. Peter's Cathedral. But even more so egregious that Luther was inflamed about was half of the money was spent to pay for Albert of Brandenburg's egregious purchase of an archbishopric of Mainz. In fact, it was to him, by the way, that Luther actually nailed the 95 Theses in the post. Now, Luther was quite rightly inflamed over this. The 95 Theses are dedicated mostly to it, and Luther was not the first person to actually voice many of these concerns that we find here. Now, I raise this point because of this important question. If the 95 Theses does not really exposit or expound any of the key foundational themes of the Reformation, then why is Luther's act of nailing the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church, why is that called the birthday of the Reformation? Was it his boldness? Not really. Uh, it sounds bold to us, but in those days, the church doors were like a notice board. People often put things there. If he wanted to uh, like ignite a, uh, you know, a massive uprising of ecclesial reform, why not post them in German? They were posted in Latin. What is it? What is it about this? The reason, I think, in my view, is not the content of the 95 Theses, or even the manner in which they may or may not have been posted or sent forth, but the underlying driving assumption which rings through the entire document. This assumption, though never explicitly stated, forms the basis of the entire work and all of Luther's writings to follow, and it is this. The sale of indulgences is an error because it is not warranted by Scripture. That's the point. That's the foundation not only of this, but the whole Reformation, the final authority for the life, faith, practice, and doctrine of the church is the Word of God, whether the first century or the 21st century. Amen? Amen. That's what sparked the Reformation. That's why 1517 is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. 
Now, we all know the Reformation had roots back long before 1517. If you're a new student, you will soon know it. Uh, the Lollards, uh, of course, they followed John Wycliffe in the 14th century. You had John Huss and his followers who sparked that amazing Bohemian Reformation in the 14th and 15th century. Uh, think about all of these things that happened. Even decades, even after 1517, it took a long time for the full import and the force of the Reformation to be fully understood and received. That's the way history actually is. It's not like you know, people come and articulate it all in a full-throated way with nice summary statements exactly the same exact moment. That doesn't happen in history. It was messy. There was a lot of fits and starts. And it was very, very interesting because of that. That's how reality is. But the importance of Luther's act of nailing 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg church was recognized in the end. What it was really about was an appeal to scripture, not to popes, not to councils. Centuries later, this important principle has been characterized in theology as the distinction between the formal principle and the material principle in theology. If you haven't had your first theology class, you're going to get a little lesson right here. The formal principle refers to the source of authority for the church. What is the final source of authority of the church? That's the formal principle. You have to first establish that. Second is the material principle, which refers to all of the theological particulars which arise out of that source of authority. The Reformation was, in the end, a struggle to reestablish the Bible as the formal authority, that is, the final authority for the church. This is the greatest work of the Reformation, even as important as any of the particulars which flow out of that. Now, one of the mistakes that Protestants often make in viewing the Roman tradition from the Catholic tradition, is that we wrongly assume that the 16th century church was one seamless, united theological tradition which the reformers challenged or critiqued. This was, of course, known at the time as the famous Augustinian synthesis, which was supposed to bring doctrinal unity to the church. But it was anything but that. As the 13th century theological giants, such as Peter Lombard, and later upon Bonaventure and Aquinas, on many points, disagreed, even fervently, over what, what Augustine actually taught. Later, uh, John Duns Scotus, and even another generation later, William Ockham, revealed anything but consensus of the church regarding doctrines like predestination, the role of free will. Think of all the debates for centuries over Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, and how grace was communicated, especially the sacraments, and what way did they communicate grace, debated endlessly, and the role of Mary, frankly, was debated endlessly. The Annunciation of Mary and the Assumption of Mary, either bodily or just her soul, were matters hotly debated. And it was pointed out repeatedly by the Dominicans that neither doctrine, nor any doctrine of Mary, were found in Scripture. In short, there's already a major unresolved tension in the life of the church between the explicit teachings of Scripture and the traditions of the church. Indeed, it's very, these very tensions which produced John Wycliffe and John Huss and so forth. So the Reformation in the 16th century was the culmination of a centuries-long process of reform. The Reformation did not so much raise new questions as bring things to a dramatic head. We can't even point to, as people often do, that the real new issue was the 
relationship between the, the Pope, the papacy, and temporal powers, because it's, of course, a big part of the English Reformation story with Henry VIII. But in fact, uh, even this point was debated hotly back in the 14th century, of which Masileus of Padua and Alvaro Paleo were on different sides. So we reject the notion that the Reformation was about anything new. We also reject the notion that the Reformation was fundamentally a movement of schism in violation of John 17 and Jesus' prayer that we be one. Please hear that. We reject the notion that the Reformation was about schism. On the contrary, the Reformation was a retrieval, a reaffirmation of the Catholic tradition, the little c Catholic tradition, the great universal tradition, both the formal sense in affirming the final authority of Scripture and the material sense in enumerating the doctrines which have always united the church throughout the ages. Indeed, the Reformation was a, not a rejection of Catholicity, but the rejection of dogmas which arose out of the Roman tradition rather than Scripture. What protests the Reformers made were ultimately lodged on behalf of the one holy Catholic apostolic church of the ages. The major break in the church in 1054 has rightly been called the Great Schism over language, over the filioque, all of that. But the Reformation has never been called that. It was called the Reformation, the Reformation, the reforming of the church, the recapturing the church back to its apostolic foundations. Now, all the various streams of the Reformation, really Lutheran, uh, Reformed, Anglican, or Radical Reformers, they did disagree about what the precise role of tradition is, or the role of reason or experience. But in the end, they all agreed, despite traditions or church or reason, that none of those are part of the formal principle. That's part of the material principle. There was no real debate about that point. The Bible is the final authority of the church, which is why, by the way, this is an aside, footnote, but why the Wesleyan discussion of the quadrilateral, the more modern discussion, is never meant to be an equilateral of scripture, tradition, faith, and experience. The church has always understood rightly that it is the Bible which is the final source of authority for the church in the formal way. The church tradition, as important as it is, it allows us to enter into a conversation with the global church through the ages. It allows us to understand how they understood Catholicity and gifts to the church, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasius Creed, the Charleston formulation of 451, these are great gifts to us because they were also reading the scriptures, the rule of faith. We thank God for, for tradition. We thank God for experience and reason. But those are not the formal principles. Now, the Protestant Reformation, every much as bit as the Western revivals of the 18th century, formed the historic background which gave rise to Asbury Theological Seminary. Now, let me give you a little background on what happened. In May of 1922, Harry Emerson Fosdick preached a sermon in New York City which raised questions about the authority of Scripture and cast doubts on the apostolic proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The country was plunged in what became known as the modernist controversy. And this has been rumbling in the seminary since the 1880s, but now it was out into the public life of the church. John D. Rockefeller, of Rockefeller fame, he used his resources to send a copy of Fosdick's sermon to every Protestant pastor in the country. 
huge uproar. And on October 6, 1930, Fosdick's picture and the whole modernist controversy was made the front cover of Time magazine. The whole church, indeed the whole nation, was caught up in this controversy. Now, according to the modernists of the time, the, uh, the gospel must be reconciled with a new insight that Christ was merely an ethical teacher, not the Son of God. They taught that the Bible was a collection of human wisdom, but not the Word of God. Christianity may be a way to God, but it was not, certainly not the way to God, and only on it went. Well, it began as a crisis within the Presbyterian Church and, of course, Princeton Seminary, later spread to all mainline seminaries, and as with the 16th century, the issue was over the final authority of Scripture. It was a fight over the formal principle. In the Western world, modernism took root at Boston University, and got at 1930, the modernists had gained control of every mainline seminary in the country. Think about it. Now, it is this tumult of the 20th century, recapitulating many of the themes of the Reformation, which gave rise to our beloved founder, Henry Clay Morrison. As seminaries across America have been influenced by this new modernist teaching, uh, Henry Clay Morrison, who was the, the uh, president of the college across the street at the time, he decided to found Asbury Seminary in 1923 to stand for the word of God, the importance of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the call to sanctification, and the ongoing mandate for world evangelization. Now, this happened all across the country. Uh, the, Dallas Seminary is founded just the very next year, 1924, after we were founded. They founded by Ola University. It goes on and on. It is also the, the reason for the publishing, uh, or the founding of Zonovan Publishing House, founded in 1931, and Baker Publishing House, founded in 1939. Now, if you have your bulletin, when Henry Clary Morrison founded the seminary, he set forth the founding seal of the seminary, which is found on the front cover of your program. Now you'll notice, of course, the, the shield of scholarship, the open Bible, and notice the phrase. What does it say there? The whole Bible for the whole world. Okay? Now if you examine that uh, wonderful statement on our, our founding seal, you'll notice the phrase, the whole Bible, is a statement of the formal principle. Asbury Seminary is committed to the Bible as the final authoritative source of our faith and practice. As we've seen, this is not you know, a novel assertion, but one which lies at the heart of the church's struggle for its identity all through the ages. Without a clear establishment of the formal principle, we are left to drift on the latest tides of cultural change and at times, frankly, the fogginess of the church itself regarding the gospel. Our founding motto, in some ways, is shorthand of the Reformation's sola scriptura, scripture alone, or John Wesley's famous statement that he is a man of one book. Now, you notice the adjective of the whole in the phrase whole Bible. This is also important to our tradition, because central to the Reformation is that the church must stay in Reformation. Let's keep going back to the scriptures, see what we have not heard the word of God properly. All through the generations, students like you gathered here together today must return again and again to the scriptures as the rule of faith. I understand this is not an isolated struggle of the 16th century, but part of an ongoing challenge for every generation of Christians. 
The Wesleyan movement affirmed the Reformation, but believed that our doctrine of salvation should be more Trinitarian. The doctrine of justification should lead to sanctification. All of these things uh, are part of that. So the whole Bible is this code, phrase, code word or code phrase for the need not to neglect any of the teachings of Scripture would be a more expensive view of grace, social holiness and our sanctification, the call to discipleship, or the role of the church in transforming society. Now the second phrase, the, for the whole world, is in some ways a summary of the material principle. It demonstrates the purpose of all these doctrines, the purpose of the, the Bible's uh, proclamation, which arises out of that, which is our role as the people on mission in collaboration with the triune God and the global church to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is what makes us evangelical. Not merely believing right doctrines, but our commitment to evangelism, church planting, spreading scriptural holiness, and embodying all the realities of the new creation in the present age. Now, Asbury Seminary is now approaching soon our 100th anniversary in the year 2023. Now, we've been thinking about this for a long time as we approach this milestone, how to prepare for that. So some years back, we took up a project among our faculty and students and staff, all of us, to, um, to produce what eventually became known as the 2023 strategic plan. This is the 2.0 version, the updated version. 23 goals for the year 2023. Now, this is kind of our blueprint for reaffirming our heritage and asking the question, what should Asbury see and what do we need to do to get ready for the next 100 years? Well, part of that initiative, which we've now been pursuing for seven years in earnest, is to recognize that many of our initiatives could not be accomplished without the strong support of many of our friends and well-wishers and prayer warriors around the country and the world who want to stand with us to train you uh, to spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. So in January 2015, we launched our comprehensive campaign. We launched the quiet phase of it. Let me first explain what a quiet phase is. A quiet phase in a campaign is where you don't go public. You just quietly go around and you talk to your donors quietly and line up as much support as you can get. Translation, Jay Manser and myself and our team spent a lot of time in planes flying all over creation sitting in living rooms across the country. This has been a big part of my life and our lives last three years, and the whole Asbury team, all of the people that help us. But it's called a comprehensive campaign rather than a capital campaign. A capital campaign is where you focus on buildings and physical assets. Now, you know, if you've been here for a while, we spent a lot of time doing that back in 2009 to 12. We built Callis Village, we built Galloway Village, we redid the whole uh, uh, the Larry Morris Hall, and uh, now the beautiful uh, EMT building. We renovated the whole downstairs for the ARP area. We paid off the debt in the Florida campus. We spent a lot of time on capital improvements on our campus, and we have more to do. But a comprehensive campaign is not on physical space so much as furthering the core mission of the school. And we thought for a long time and prayed, what is the most important asset we have? And you know what the answer is? It's you, our students. And so the flagship part of the comprehensive campaign is $40 million for student scholarships. 
There ought to be at least an amen out of that. <laughs> we do not want our students burdened by debt. We're raising $2 million for Seedbed, our publishing arm, and our new room networking platform. Just as Zonovan and Baker were found in the wake of the modernist controversy, we saw the need for a Wesleyan publishing house, which was unequivocally committed to the word of God and the great riches found in the Wesleyan stream. And in time, Seedbed will become the leading publisher of Wesleyan materials in the world. We're raising $1 million for our Hispanic initiative, uh, on our Florida campus especially, yet the Hispanics, of course, the largest segment of our population, yet are dramatically under-resourced, and we want to bridge that gap. We're raising two and a half million for a theology-chaired professorship so that we can continue to attract the best professors in the world. We're raising five million for our church plan initiative so we can represent the gospel to a new generation who has not heard the gospel, heard it very well. Our basic vision is to connect, train, and resource 2,000 domestic and international church planners and re-missioners from various backgrounds in the Wesleyan tradition. We thank God for all those on this team here that have helped make that uh, dream come forward. We're also raising millions in deferred giving for estates, which we will never see in my lifetime. Depends on how long I live, I guess. But we want to see... God to prepare for this, uh, give us strength for the seminary's initiative for many, many years to come. So we're planning for our long-term security in the next 100 years. We're also, the only physical asset we're raising money for is actually Estes Chapel. You can see it's already beginning to happen, but $1.5 million to renew this space of worship. But it's not really about this space so much, about this physical part, but to remind ourselves theologically that we are, at our core, a worshiping community. All of that is there and more. We're calling this campaign a hundredfold. You heard the text from Matthew 13 earlier. Because we're sowing seeds, expecting God to bring a great harvest. So from January 2015 until today, we've been in the quiet phase, traveling all over the country, on the support of our key donors and friends. And today, I formally announce and I launch the public phase of the campaign. And we're going to also establish the goal of the campaign. Under God's grace, we're asking God to give us $100 million for Asbury's 100th birthday. Amen? We also want to remind that we're announcing here, not in a donor event, we're announcing here because we want you to know that this campaign is about you, our students, the core mission of the school and our graduates. Well, how are we doing in the quiet phase? Well, thankfully, we have Tammy Hogan here, who is the executive director of our uh, advancement. And I want to say, Tammy, thank you for all of your tireless work. And I know you're always busy. The last three years have been crazy. But thank you for unveiling our quiet phase where we are at this time. You're puffing in faith. The faculty, for once, are in the dark. <laughs> you know something they don't know. All right. Let me, for the sake of the faculty, and those on the stage here, 
the uh, quiet phase of the campaign, we've already uh, raised $68,611,086, praise the Lord. I know I speak for the whole Advancement team this, and everybody. This is a miracle. But let me tell you, the greatest miracle of all is not that. As great as that is, I'm so thankful for it. But the greatest miracle of Asbury Seminary is not that. The greatest miracle is that we have stayed on mission for 100 years. Amen. Amen. By God's grace, we're going to stay on mission for the next 100 years. Now think of the challenges that we have faced in our history. If you were to turn the clock back when H.C. Morrison, our beloved founder, came across and founded the seminary, it was the middle, I said, the middle of the modernist controversy, the, the, the whole theological liberalism. He had to grow the seminary and plant it at that time. Everything was against him. And then to add to that, the whole country was plunged in just a few years into the Great Depression. And all the global turmoil at that time following the rise of the Third Reich. J.C. Feeders led the seminary during the time of World War II and the Korean War. He witnessed Asbury's loss of accreditation and a 10-year struggle to get it back. Think about the time of Frank Bankman Stanger, who led the seminary during a time of cultural change in the U.S., the Vietnam War, student protest movements across the country, the struggle for civil rights, Assassinations of JFK, MLK Jr., the political turmoil of Watergate. He also had the privilege of witnessing what, the Asbury Revival in February 1970. David McKenna led the seminary during the breakup of the Soviet Union, the resulting breathtaking change around the world with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the overthrow of totalitarianism in Eastern Europe. He was present when Hussein invaded uh, Iraq in the first uh, Gulf War. Uh, Maxie Dunham was uh, served as a time when the rise of Islamic terrorism, uh, global conflicts, and was present when 9-11 took place. He also witnessed the second Gulf War. And Maxie also witnessed the deepening crisis in the United Methodist Church as the church began to embrace more novel doctrine. He reminded us of prayer fulfilling our mission and in his leadership when we launched our Florida Dunham campus. Jeff Greenway was here at a time when he understood the new realities of the post-traditional student. Though his presence was short, it was under his leadership we began to launch more focused training sites to bring our training out to where students are. Ellsworth Callis, during the interim period, served at a time of institutional crisis and challenge, preparing us for where we are today. And he reminded us through his godly example and the preaching of the gospel that preaching is at the heart of our mission. I'm speaking today from the Ellsworth Callis pulpit in honor of that great contribution he made to us. The point of this overview is to highlight that every period in our history, we have faced major challenges. And through it all, we have seen the providential hand of God leading and guiding Asbury Seminary. We could not have sustained it, but our dedicated faculty who every day, some already this morning, walk into classes and faithfully teach and train our students for generations. We have to thank God for our dedicated faculty. Amen.
just also thank God for the staff who come in our midst, who tirelessly, year after year, work in our mission, support our mission in so many ways for the work of Asbury Seminary. Thank God for the staff of the seminary. We also are part of a great historic stream from 1923. Nobody that was there in those early days is here today. And there are 10,000 graduates all over the world, and there's 10,000 more that will follow you someday. You're in the middle of a great stream of Asburyans who have gone out sacrificially and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. And I thank God for our students here and around the world. You can talk to yourself. <laughs> well, we face our own challenges, don't we? And I'll mention just a few in closing. The crisis, not, all, not just the crisis of truth, but the crisis of even the category of truth. The Oxford Dictionary named as their 2017 word of the year, the word post-truth. The challenge, the challenge that is for us, and it's even that alone is enormous, where truth is nothing more than socially constructed narratives. The only meaningful thing that happens when somebody reads the Bible is the reader, not the text. That's the world that you face. Think about, secondly, the tragic exposure of the new depths of racism in our country. We can only look back to Charlottesville, but so many examples over the last several years your generation is facing unique challenges that must be met. The church must speak out. Think about the challenges as well of the rise of a new Gnosticism in our country and around the world, particularly our country, with a company loss of the Christian view of the body. Had enormous implications on our view of marriage, of human sexuality, and human identity. At least the past generation only had to deal with the scientific materialistic self. We're also dealing with the, the virtual digital self. And here we are with this amazing message of the Trinitarian ecclesial self. We're also facing the rise of the nuns, not, not the N-U-N-S, we're thankful for them, the N-O-N-E-S, <laughs> the nuns, the new atheism. Those with no religious affiliation that are crying out for someone to come give them a compelling reason to believe. They've not been given that. We're also, you'll conduct your ministries in the larger context of our transition to a post-Christendom culture, which is in full throes, if not a post-Christian culture. We're also witnessing a particular crisis within the United Methodist Church, which will affect us in dramatic ways. We're certainly experiencing the throes, finally, of evangelical reductionism, which saints can't seem to get behind, beyond the question, what is the least someone has to do to become a Christian? We have a lot of work to do to, announce, to address that reductionism. But in the midst of all these staggering changes and all these challenges, we must remember that which never changes. People are still sinners, and the gospel is still true. Amen? Amen? There's a throne in the heavens, and guess what? It's not empty. God's in control of human history. We can still say with Luther the words he uttered as he entered the city of Worms in April of 1521, fully expecting it would cost him his life when he said these words. 
Though Huss was burned, the truth cannot be burned, and Christ still lives. Amen. Amen. Even though the promised land is full of giants, it's still our inheritance. We have land to take. This is the trajectory of human history, and it will culminate. And the great thing is we know the culmination of human history with all of its horrible tragedies, all of its sinfulness, all of its brokenness. This is how human history will end. The kingdoms of this world have become the king of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen? That's where we're headed. It's this great counter-narrative to the world's broken narratives which gives us hope in the midst of our own trials and challenges because ultimately it's bound to the life of the triune God. And so we have our own theses to nail the door of Estes Chapel. Let's nail them. You know, 2,000 church planters trained, the best theological faculty in the world, bang! Residential Renaissance, the New Room Networking, Faithful Preacher of the Gospel, Sanctified Spirit-filled students, Global Partnerships, $100 million for Ezra's 100th birthday, the whole Bible for the whole world. Amen? Let's nail that to our door. Let's be about this great work that God's called us to in our day. Amen.